This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. We've got a great guest today on Dreamland, someone who's been with us many times, and you're going to love it uh, because we're going to be talking to, and here he comes, Preston Dennett's back with us. Humanoids and high strangeness. This is super right in the middle in the depths of Preston Dennett's wheelhouse. Preston is uh, really into the whole idea of humanoids and high strangeness and things like that. And this new book, Humanoids and High Strangeness, is 20 UFO encounters, true in the sense that these are what the people have reported. And you can find out more about it on Preston's YouTube channel. And because he's got a very active YouTube channel, he has his own podcast on the channel and um, is planning to, I think, get into audio podcasting as well soon. So he's a going guy and he, he seems to be <laughs> you seem to have a book out about every 10 days. And but they're good books. They're so enjoyable. Getting into these stories is is important because the more of this that we see and read, the better we are at untangling our own perceptions when when and if this happens to us. So anyway, welcome to Dreamland, Preston. <laughs> Thanks, Whitley. Always a pleasure. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Um, Preston, and I have discovered, has chickens. Uh, he and Dolly, uh, who has been on Dreamland before uh, with her own extraordinary experiences. But um, she, the chickens aren't in this show, sadly enough. He's, <laughs> I, I wanted to bring him in. He, he wouldn't do it. Okay. Humanoids and high trade. Just, you know, I asked for some, some specific stories that Preston really wanted to talk about. But there's a there's one that you didn't send me about Joseph Wandrika. This is a story that uh, took place in Vienna, in um, back in 1954, and it really stuck out in the sh in the uh, uh, in in this for me because it there was another case in Brazil, which was extensively studied by Jacques Vallée of a, a young man who did the same thing. So let's talk about first about that case, the Joseph Wandrika case. Yeah, yeah, I like that case. That's one I looked into. I didn't personally interview the witness, uh, but what a fascinating case. It absolutely caught my attention because here's a young man who is a political activist in his country of Austria and would often moped around the country and was out in the forests. This is south of Vienna, I believe. And he's a young man and sees this glint of metal along this forest path where he's driving his little moped and is curious because he had seen UFOs before uh, and wondered what they were and came upon this craft, which was actually landed. It had a ramp coming down to the ground, was well lit inside with a bright yellow light, and he could see about six figures, quite short, very youthful looking, 
really beautiful, what we might call Nordics. I don't really like that term because it's a bit misleading, I think, because some of them do have dark skin. In this case, they didn't. They were all blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very youthful-looking, wearing jumpsuits without any buttons or anything on them, and appeared to be waiting for him, which he found curious. And he just drove right up to them, and they seemed very welcoming. So he actually took his moped and drove it up the ramp, right into the entrance of the craft. Uh, and he said it was quite surprising. And like many witnesses, he said that there was really not a whole lot in there in terms of equipment or consoles or anything like that. And very well lit with indirect lighting. But what I love about this case is they started speaking to him with quite a long conversation. He introduced himself and basically said where he lived. And they also replied saying that they were from the highest star in the Cassiopeia constellation. I thought that was interesting. I looked up that star. It's quite larger than ours. There's no known exoplanets, but interesting nevertheless. And he started kind of complaining to them about the state of the world at that time, which was, you know, I believe this was the late 1940s. This is a pretty early case and uh, lots of political unrest. And he was complaining about how politicians are ruling the world and it's all greed and corruption and famine and disease. And could they intervene? And they said, no, no, we can't intervene. You are in a much better position as a citizen of this planet to change things. Uh, we have no intentions of doing anything like that. That's Which, still true as far as I know. Exactly. Yeah, I've heard you know, people keep sometimes. keep thinking, oh, they'll come and save us. Somehow I, I doubt that very much. I think it's up to us. This is our place and it's we do it here or we don't. And uh, they, they will watch us and they will interact with us. And in fact, uh, like this is a case of interaction. Another one that happened, the reason I wanted to talk about this case is the Villas Boas case in Brazil in 1957, which has got a lot of similar similarities, uh, including, well, the first in entities he saw weren't humanoid really, they were, but then he found himself with a very beautiful woman and uh, inside the ship as well, and had a, a an equally equivocal experience. And it's as if, it's as if someone was sort of, had found us and was looking around in various places very carefully in other words, it, it, they were not—they were not as secretive, perhaps, as they are now, because maybe back then they hadn't been shot at so much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, they weren't as secret—they aren't as secretive as they are now, and um, uh, they're kind of snooping around and seeing people in different places. I thought that was a very interesting comparison that the two would be so similar. But the coolest part of the story, of course, is he drives, he chooses 
to drive the moped in instead of walk. <laughs> I just love it. That's And that's also a little detail that makes you think this in some way probably is a true story because who would say that if it didn't happen because it sounds so crazy? It sounds like the last thing you would do. I'd say, well, I put my moped aside and walked up the ramp. But instead, <laughs> he drives up the ramp. Now, there's quite a few little details in it that really make me think this is, did happen. Because he described how when he left, he spun his moped around and the floor was like smooth ice. It's just very, very no friction almost at all, which is something I have heard from other people. Little details like that. They seem very interested in his moped, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, God, I was interested in mopeds in 1957, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, when you say frictionless and, and other cases, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, people have. There was one guy, Jay Gardner, I think, described how the floor was almost like glass. It's the smoothest thing he's ever felt. And he, the entities that he saw were just actually glide across it. He had to walk, uh, but they just glided right across it. And I've heard that sort of description that the floor is in the walls, for that matter. Another guy, Tim, from Louisiana, felt the walls because he said, this, these were the smoothest things I have ever felt. It's smoother than glass. So you, you can imagine, I mean, they struggle for words, I think. That's yeah. another thing. I find very fascinating because there are no words to describe some of the stuff you're, you're experiencing. And uh, yeah, that smoothness comes up a lot. The metallurgist Robert Sauerbacher, uh, who died the two days after I talked to him mm. in uh, 1986, told me, and he, he's known to have, he, he went public with the fact that he'd worked on the Roswell materials. Uh, in other words, there's letters and so forth that you can easily find on the internet now. Uh, and he was introduced to me by uh, Stanton Friedman because I was looking at that point when I was writing communion for some kind of physical evidence of some sort of this. And he said a very interesting thing. He said it, the, mole the molecules in the metal were arranged in, a, an, uh, in an artificially created grid and that was what made the metal so strong. And I wonder if it also made it extremely smooth. Could very well be. Yeah, he said it was not something that we could do. So anyway, it seems like something was happening back in the 50s. And it made me wonder if some of the early contactees with their Venusians and so forth, which we always dismiss as imaginary because they're so sort of silly. Uh, if we're dealing with something much larger, that there was a worldwide attempt by somebody who looked somewhat like us to explore kind of what we were. It's interesting that, it, and, and maybe maybe those stories from the 50s need to, another look taken, uh, maybe a very careful analysis of the details of the stories would cause some uh, consistencies to emerge that we've always assumed just weren't there. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think a lot of researchers have dismissed the whole contactee era 
of the 1950s. George Adamski, Howard Menger, Truman Bethram, Daniel Fry. There's quite a few of them. Right. Uh, and I don't think it disappeared. I think it was kind of pushed underground by a lot of the reports of the Greys. But, you know, I'm getting a lot more of these human-looking ET reports as time goes on. So, Are you seeing recent ones? Uh, well, relatively. Um, let me see. In terms of recent, I would say the most recent I have would be I'd have to look into that. 2013, there's one case. But that's very recent. Because I used to have them too until something happened in the 1990s that I'm, we're not talking about that today, although I'm going to get into it extensively in the book I'm writing that changed it profoundly for me. And after that, I wondered if there were even, if they'd been thrown out by the grays in a sense, but maybe not. Uh, yeah, it's I one of the to, common types for sure. I mean, there's grays, praying mantis, Human-looking, that's mostly what I hear. Yeah. Well, you know, you speak of praying mantises. Why don't we talk about Mother Mantis next? But before we do that, before we do that, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Because we have these other beings that begin to come in a little later, actually. I don't think there's too many stories of greys or mantis beings or any kind of non-human entities before the early 60s, if I'm not correct. There are a few. I have seen a few, but not many. But then in, in that period, there's the humanoid stories drop off a bit, and then the uh, uh, non-humanoid stories sort of increase. I guess 1945, the Trinity incident, that uh, Jacques Vallée and Paola Harris uh, studied is an early instance of that. But tell us the story of Mother Mantis. It's such a good one. Yeah, I love the story of the lady. She's become quite a good friend. Her name is Sandra. She doesn't want her last name used. But an amazing account, because hers happened in New Mexico Albuquerque, actually, in 1947, in the summer of 1947. And she believes her father may have been involved in researching the Roswell incident because he was called there and he was quite highly placed in the Navy. But, so you know, I just just stop for a second. General Exxon's description of the what he held in his arms was, as he put it, a big insect. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. So he told them those were his exact words. And I was supposed to never tell anything about the bodies, but things have changed so much that um, I'm beginning <laughs> to talk about it a little bit, even though I said to him at the time, I, I wouldn't uh, tell about them. They were very secretive about the bodies for some reason. And the 1945 instance, the same type of being. So go ahead. And this wow. is just the right time period. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's a connection there because... Well, yeah. Apparently, yeah. I mean, it was the exact same time period. And Sandra had grown up with some pretty unusual experiences when she was in her crib. She does not remember this, but her mother saw her levitating above the crib. <laughs> Completely freaked her out. And said, you know, who's ever doing this? Put her down. Yeah, there's she, nothing like a levitation to upset your parents. <laughs> <laughs> so she was having all kinds of, you know, 
remote viewing at, at a very young age and other unusual experiences where she would have a beings talk to her and explaining about the human body. But at age eight, she had a friend who lived about a mile away on the local uh, Native American reservation. And she asked her mom, which she had done many times, if she could bike there. Uh, this was a sort of a small little highway outside of Albuquerque. And uh, her mom said, of course. So this was in the early morning. Sandra sets off to drive the one mile to her friend's house and doesn't get there. Her journey is interrupted when this craft drops down on the highway in front of her. And it's not super large, maybe 20 feet across, about the width of the highway. And she can see it's metallic and a door opens up and there standing in the door is a, what we would call mantid or praying mantis. Now she's looking at it thinking, well, this is a big, tall bug that is <laughs> yeah, walking I, like I, a person. <laughs> right. uh, and, but it was friendly. She, she says it felt friendly and it kind of motioned to her gesture to come closer, which she did. And she was very curious. She felt no fear at all. And this bug-like being said, come on board. I am your mother. You can call me mother. That's and, so fascinating. It's, very, it's a very big moment there. Go Tell us what you think about that. Yeah, well, it's something I have heard before. I mean, this is... Me yeah, Dolly said this. Um, her main ET contact said, you can call me Mama. And I had a few other people after putting out that book, Symmetry, call me and says, you know what? I had the same experience. What can it mean? Because, uh, listen, I in uh, them, there's at least one case where a huge case in them where uh, the this woman and her child, her little three-year-old, are taken aboard a craft and told that the people in the craft are their family. Yes. I, I mean, I can, I can kind of look at this a couple of different ways. One, that genetically, yes, that they may actually have some genetics in them. Because it turns out, I asked Sandra, and this is a pattern that you know well, this is generational. And her mother doesn't, wouldn't talk about it. Uh, but Sandra's grandmother said, oh, yes, I was visited by beings when I was a little girl around your age. So there could be an actual physical relationship there. Or I suppose it could be a past life thing or just, you know, I don't know. There's still a lot of questions surrounding all this. But that was just a bit of information that really struck me profoundly because it's such an odd thing for an ET. Yeah. <laughs> but she, um, she, uh, another thing that's not uncommon is early, very early childhood recall, which Sandra has. I have that too. And I know lots of abductees who have recalled going some in some cases back to before they were born and the whole process of coming into the womb and being born which i also have and uh i mean what could that be about is it because there's something about these people or is it something about the experience that unlocks these early memories um i don't know i tend to think it is the person that this is one of the reasons they follow genetic lines yeah these are people who 
I've, I've heard it so many times. Sandra talks about remembering stuff all the way up to just a couple of months old. Yes. I cannot remember this, this conversation that they had a, she had a fight on the a local bus and Sandra was able to relate the argument and she was only a few months old on a right. lot of contact. He's of eidetic memories. Uh, so, that's another thing explain what eidetic means yeah well mary lou henner the famous actress is well known for this and i have at least three contactees in this latest book who have a photographic memory can remember everything um by simply i mean it comes right to them word right. even, you know the pages in a book <laughs> um it's definitely a pattern that I've seen now, now, now that I know to look for it. Uh, I, boy, I'd pay for the memory like that. I'd pay a lot of money for a memory like that. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, that's not my case. Um, now, the, the, uh, the, the tell, her life goes on. And does she have more experiences with these beings or with other beings? Uh, with other beings. Um, well, you know, when she was pulled on board, she did see greys as well. Um, mm -hmm. She thought at first were little children because, you know, there wasn't any talk of greys. Uh, but she's looking at them like bald heads, large, dark eyes. They were very playful, kind of chirping at her, touching her hair, leading her around the craft. And they showed her a hologram of future wars and, you know, scenes of battles and explosions and gunfire and basically warned her against that which seemed to be the whole purpose, or at least part of it, of the contact. But, uh, yeah. One of these hopeless warnings that we get so many of, I say hopeless because what could she do about it? <laughs> yeah, that was her, her exact thought. Because she's like, I'm, you know, I'm eight years old. What do you want me to do? <laughs> uh, exactly. She did not tell her parents about this. I asked her why not. And she says, are you kidding? Even at that age, I knew I would not be believed. But she was missing for like three hours. They went back and forth along the highway looking for her, and she was not there. They went a fourth time and found her there, lying next to the highway, unconscious or in a daze. You know, her her memory starts back in the house where she suddenly comes back to awareness. Uh, do you find that a lot of people who have childhood experiences tend to be secretive about them with their families? Yes. Yeah, some, I agree with well, you. Yeah, some will mention it, and often, more often than not, they're disbelieved. It's a rare parent who embraces this. I'd say now it's much more common. The thing that's so strange is that mostly children will tell their parents anything that's disturbing to them, but not this. This yeah. goes unspoken. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it can go unspoken all the way into through adulthood. It's not unusual yeah. for people who I interview to say, listen, no one in my family knows. Uh, more and often than we'll tell a spouse, but that's about it. Very understandable, though, that they would, uh, that they would um, do that because of all of the social control that has made this such a, an, uh, such a, uh, an, it's a real problem, an experience like this. But the thing is, children don't know about that kind of social control. I mean, when you're an adult, it certainly makes sense to not tell anyone about it because you don't want to make a fool of yourself. But uh, 
as a child, it's almost as if there's another level that is telling them, you know, don't do this. Be careful. Uh, the, uh, you know, keep it to yourself. And I wonder why that would be. What is this? Why is it so secretive? Do you have any sense of that? And it's, I know it's a huge question, and it's not just about these cases. But in all of your work, you've come across the secrecy the same way I have and others have in many, many, many different ways. Uh, let me Give me an idea of where you think it comes from. Um, gosh, you know, I wish I knew, but I absolutely agree with you. Um, ETs, there's a lady in California who told me that, a lady up in Maine, where the ET says, do not talk about this. The time is not right. Uh, and then at some point, the time is right. And then they say, you need to go step forward and talk about this. This is your mission. So there's a, a complete 180 degree turn that sometimes does take place. So I, I think it might be out of protection for the witness that the ETs know that this is not going to go over well <laughs> if you try to talk about this. Uh, and well, it's, it's a lot of stress on a person just having the encounter itself, whereas having to deal with the reaction from people who are, you know, your family members and your friends, certainly society, puts a double whammy on people. So, I, I mean, we do see this in a number of cases where the ETs will say, you're not going to remember this, you'll remember later. So I think that also connects to this of keeping it secret. So, but I don't know. I mean, this is why I do this research because there's just so many questions surrounding all of these experiences. Yeah, it was, it was really secret. When I was a child, I wouldn't ever tell anybody about it. I mean, my dad was involved, and I wish I had understood this because by the time I was 14, I had, by the time I was in high school, freshman high school, completely forgot all of it, completely forgot it, did not have any memory of it at all. How I wish... I had been able to bring it up with my dad because he facilitated a lot of contact for me. And I'm wondering if, if you have many cases where parents and children have had mutual contact and do share with each other. Um, certainly it comes up. There's one case in the book, which is extraordinary because it involved this gentleman. Uh, his name is Richard Simon who at age seven suddenly could not sleep, had absolute insomnia and never could figure out why other than a fear of intruders. And finally, as a young adult age, I think it was 20 or so, his mom decided to stop smoking by going to a hypnotherapist. His mom's name was Ines. And I interviewed both of them. And they, she's like, why don't you Richard come with me and the hypnotherapist can help your, with your insomnia. So they were going for these mundane reasons to this hypnotherapist. But what came out instead was a mutually shared encounter. <laughs> that must have been quite a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> she went in first and he could hear her crying through the walls of the office. 
And she comes out after an hour, very teary eyed. And he's like, what's wrong, mom? She's like, I don't want to talk about it. It's your turn. You go in. And yeah, he recalled being taken on board at age seven. And she was there. She was in the other room. They were both being examined. And what's really interesting to me is with this case, he actually contacted you, by the way, and you responded very kindly, he said. I did. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, that, that, uh, that letter, therefore, probably is in the archive because we, we couldn't respond to all the letters, unfortunately, because there were tens of thousands of them. But any letter we responded to definitely is now in the archive in it at Rice University. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah it was, so it's there. Well, you definitely had an influence on him because his mom said, well, you know what, Richard? When I was seven years old, I saw humanoids. She was in the barn. And of course, he grew up, had kids. And when his child was seven, she came running into the room, dropped her Barbies and said, dad, dad, pointing to the TV where there was a gray ET. She's like, that's who came into my room and poked me in the nose. She was <laughs> suffering from nosebleeds. Now, of course, she grew up. She has a 10-year-old child right now, but three years ago, when her child was seven, started complaining about the monkey man, the bald monkey man looking into the window and coming into her room. So that's four generations of people who've shared encounters at age seven. We're going to talk more about this in just a minute. We're taking another brief break. We're talking to Preston Dennett, his new book, So Cool, Humanoids and High Strangeness, 22 UFO Encounters. And Preston is a good researcher. Uh, he's like all good researchers. He tries his best when he says true UFO encounters. There are many multiple witness encounters in here, which helps. And the ones that aren't multiple witness encounters, as we've been to an extent discussing, have elements that do suggest that there is some kind of accuracy in these reports. But, you know, one of the things that happens in the sort of external community is the assumption that, oh, we're just a bunch of nuts making things up or publicity hounds and so forth. And it's so far from the truth. Actually, what this is, is a testament of, hum of real human experience of some kind. And that gets me to a question. If this isn't E.T., what do you, you, you're bound to have thought about other possibilities. And can you give me some ideas about what they may be? Yeah, well, I'm a big believer that it is extraterrestrial after having tr just tried to find other explanations. That's still the one that to me rings truest and best explains the evidence. But a lot of stuff does get put under the UFO umbrella, which I think perhaps doesn't belong there. I think there probably are interdimensional beings. There's one guy in the book who I don't think he saw an ET. I think he saw an elf or something along those lines, a gnome, <laughs> a, a interdimensional, if you will, supernatural being, what we might call a crypto terrestrial, uh, which has been here all along. And yeah. might be considered an ET or interpreted that way when I don't think it is. So I think that does come up. I think some people who think they're seeing ETs probably saw an angelic figure of some kind. Because if you have a glowing being that comes into your room and heals you, how do you interpret that? Uh, so 
I don't think they're time travelers from the future. Um, there is, of course, a very popular explanation that this is an interdimensional intelligence that wears different masks, sort of along the lines of John Keel and uh, Jerome Clark and Jacques Vallée. And this I think Jeff Kripal would be in that camp too. Yeah, which I, I'm not going to completely rule that out. No. Uh, but I'm, I'm puzzled by it because what about the crash retrieval reports? And the bodies, yeah. yeah. And b believe me when I say this, folks, there is extensive information about those bodies. They have been studied for years, and I am hoping that if there is another release of information, it will finally be about the bodies. Uh, you know, I've decided in my next book, I'm just going to write about them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I can't prove anything. I can't, but I have a lot of detailed information about these bodies and they are exactly that bodies. So exactly. I, I don't see if they're from another dimension, another, an, another physical universe. That's perhaps a mirror universe. I, I think such, I'm quite sure such a thing exists. Uh, I don't see that that uh, they would leave bodies here. I, exactly. I think if, if or how they would be here in terms of physicality, it's just very well, it's curious. If you look at the whole Bigfoot phenomena, there does yeah. seem to be an interdimensional aspect to that too. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that interdimensional beings describing them that way is not particularly useful because what isn't interdimensional? We ourselves have an interdimensional aspect in terms of a soul or a dream right. body or an astral body that moves on to higher dimensions. And I think the ETs have mastered that. And so we see a lot of what looks like, quote, supernatural activity in terms of levitating ETs and walking through walls and disappearing and these sort of right. things. Well, now so, these these things could be technology. Exactly. In other words, there's there could be. It, it, in fact, uh, as I recall, we had a situation at our cabin once, where it was very clear that a, there was an invisible being in there, and it was using a technology to to remain invisible. I believe I described this extensively in my book, Transformation. So it is. It is uh, that's certainly possible if someone can control gravity, which they obviously can. If you see these ships fl flying around, uh, they can also can do things like bend light. And if you can bend light, you can make yourself completely invisible. You can just move the light that's coming from behind you around yourself. And that was what was going on that night in our cabin. Now, it, so. It, so it, if you have technologies that make you able to disappear and walk through walls and so forth, it's going to look like you're from another dimension when actually you're hiding out in the woods. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I once had a couple from Illinois contact me who were describing haunting activity. I'm like, well, this sounds like a ghost. They, you know, the doors were opening and closing and things like this, footsteps. And they're like, but there's this UFO hovering over our house at night. I'm like, 
oh, gosh. I mean, it's not always easy to tell what's going on. Well, exactly. The, 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 that happened at our cabin, and it happens to other people, too. Plenty of people who will ha be having what appear to be paranormal experiences and contact with the dead in a context where there's actually a UFO a few feet away, up 100 feet above their, their house, and they don't see that. Or they, they do see it, or some other witness sees it. But And this gets me to this question. The dead are involved in this. And somehow, because when we, at the cabin, whenever the dead would show up before or during multiple witness close encounter experiences at the cabin, what do you make of that? What and and do you have any cases? I think I may have read one of the cases that uh, where there were there was a connection between the dead and the and the entities. It does come up. It's pretty rare. I, I find that a lot of contactees are very reluctant to talk about some of these super high strangeness aspects, yeah. which is why right. I really wanted to embrace that in this book. And I keep having contactees call me back and say, well, no, I heard you th say this. Now I'm going to tell you. I'm like, well, shoot, you know, I could have put that in the book. Uh, so, I mean, that did come up with a gentleman I interviewed who was in a previous book, actually. His name is Don Anderson, whose father passed away. And he saw his father deceased on board a craft. So I think this is a situation <laughs> where the ETs are able to communicate with deceased people in a very easy way. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, because when people are taken on board a craft, it's in some ways a lot like a near-death experience. And they are, might actually be in a higher dimension when you're on that craft and what we would think of as the other side, which would make, you know, communication with deceased people perfectly natural. So I think that's perhaps the mechanics behind what's going on. I'm speculating, but there's enough cases now where I think we have to take a serious look at, the, at these kinds of experiences because a lot of people are describing them. Yeah, and there's even there is even one case where a um, a witness shot an ET and shot the ET and the ET blew up, exploded into this, all of these, this sort of liquid material that evaporated. But then the witness was haunted by the ET's ghost, oh, which wow. was outraged. And of course he was outraged because it had lost the body, but it didn't, I don't think it, you could say that it felt like it had been killed. And I'm wondering if they just don't have the same relationship to reality that we do, some of them at least. That, you know, to them, the body is simply a tool to be used to be in this level of reality. And uh, the soul is where they really live. And in which case, the whole question of are they from other planets or not just gets becomes kind of meaningless. Yeah, well, I was talking to Dolly Saffron about this actually. And she says when the ETs die, it's not a big deal. And they come, they're reborn, and they actually remember all their past lives, which is something we're just beginning to do. And it echoed some of what other contactees were telling me, like 
one lady who reached out to her main ET contact, a gray that calls himself Sen, and she started reaching the, the souls of deceased grays who had passed on uh, from genetic uh, hybridization programs that didn't work out. Uh, so these were all her children who were the ghosts of grays, <laughs> presumably on the other side. Uh, so, I mean, this, this is what I'm talking about, high strangeness. There's this weird sort of assumption, I think, that UFO contact is all about being pulled on board and physically examined and let go. It's, it's much more than that. Right. It, it, that, yeah. No one's going to make this effort to come here and abduct somebody just to fool around with them for a few minutes and send them back. It's a bigger deal than that, but also this is a this whatever's here is very good at controlling memory. Mm. In other words, they can they can. This is why multiple witness ev events are so important because I think it's probably harder to control the memories of uh, a group of people who, who who can then compare what they saw. So you have a something else going on. And let's talk a bit, little bit about hybrids. But before we do that, we're going to take a final break. We'll be right back. We're talking to Preston Dennett, his new book, Humanoids and High Strangeness. Uh, Preston himself is a humanoid, and he's pretty strange, and so am I. So we're, <laughs> we're doing pretty good together. Uh, and let's now talk about this. And uh, do you, what are your thoughts? Or have you had on the whole hybrid program? The hybrid, yeah, yeah. Well, I've, there's no doubt in my mind that this is going on. Uh, one of my very first cases, way back in 1988, involved a family who was involved with this, and it was the daughter who was having most of the experiences. But the mother was pulled on board and shown the babies, told to hold them, give them love that they needed love. This was your typical, quote, baby presentation. And I've talked to dozens of contactees, at least, who have had this experience. Yeah, my wife and I had it. Yeah, people react in different ways. Some are like, oh, they're overjoyed. Like, this is my child. Others are like, horrified. Uh, like, they did not give permission for this. And they're a little bit repulsed or have some revulsion towards the appearance of these children, but at the same time have a strong maternal or paternal attraction to them. And I've talked to some people, Dolly Saffron is one, but many, there was another, same lady I mentioned up in Maine, who met her full-grown adult hybrid son. So this is an ongoing relationship that a lot of contactees have with children who are living with the ETs, who become adults at some point. Absolutely, this is a thing. One of the most extraordinary cases I had involved a couple from Canada who had a missing fetus at seven and a half months. And the wife was actually fine with it. She says, I know my child is safe. <laughs> They're living, wow. She's living with the ETs and got a chance to see her. And the husband was very upset and couldn't understand why his wife was like, this is fine, don't worry. <laughs> He's like, no, we just lost your child. They knew. I mean, they sent me the medical reports of her pregnancy. This is well verified. So that was an extraordinary 
case in terms of you know how long the pregnancy went usually this seven months is a long time before disappearing fetuses usually take place in the first or second trimester exactly Uh, but yeah three four children missing pregnancies is not unusual among female contactees Uh, but this happens to men as well there was a guy from upstate new york who was taken on board it was this one and only fully conscious contact because he had so much missing time the ets brought him on board and said you need to know why we contacted you here is your child aren't you happy he said, no I, i'm not happy <laughs> this right. is really upsetting he was very upset about it but at the same time he loved this child so did the was, child look human or half human half gray gray i think the grays are essentially human in genetically speaking finally someone says that the answer i think is absolutely right yeah. i think the grays are in essentially human do you think they're from the future i don't i mean there are i i scoured the literature to find cases that would absolutely support that and you can find a few but i don't think that they're like they can certainly time travel <laughs> and the things they can do with time are unbelievable and right and that, incredible stuff i've had some experiences myself you know i did have a missing time encounter which i completely forgot i've had memories of being on board but there was one time i was just dead set i needed to find out who these grays are i need to know and i just meditated 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 and i had probably my one and only true quote download where i was just lying in bed and information poured into my brain in an instant and it took me a while to unravel it but basically what it showed was a a human looking male very much like your average person hair you know brown eyes facial hair and it started flipping through images where the man lost his hair started to lose his facial features and the head grew larger and it took about 60 or 70 I guess you'd call them generations or images where it transformed into a complete typical gray. And the message was, this was, we are human. <laughs> and what we're dealing with here is genetic damage, which is certainly what many contactees have told me. And the story is sometimes a little different in its details, but genetic damage due to actual manipulation or perhaps radiation or perhaps a war on their planet way, way, way back. But another sort of indication that we're dealing with uh, humans. And a couple of cases I have, the ETs, the Gray said, we looked just like you. And they're trying to bring that back. So. Yeah, I can well understand that. (laughs) Given what they look like now, if they once looked like us and still have that same aesthetic, and you know, that reminds me of something fascinating and personal. Uh, I remember how the old lady who came to the house so much thought us beautiful and how she hated the slightest thought that would, if a slight thought crossed my mind that how aesthetically challenged she was let's put it that way 
she would scream. She would go Ow! like it, like exactly like I had slapped her in the face physically. And I think it, there may be something in that because they do not think themselves beautiful, but I think they do think us beautiful. Well, that's even me. <laughs> yeah. I, I think all of us have a little bit of that. I mean, we can see that with the, how rampant cosmetic surgery is. People yes. are constantly trying to adjust their appearance and makeup. And, yeah. And I, I see too many women being turned into, into, basilisks or statues their faces cease to function uh, we had a friend uh we'd known for years and she'd gotten a lot of plastic surgery and sort of been in hiding and we saw her walking down sidewalk and, and uh i i didn't recognize her at all but ann did and she said hello to us and i looked at her i couldn't think who it was and ann recognized her and they talked for a moment and she had occasion to laugh. And when she laughed, her face didn't change. The laughter came out, but her face was like, ha, 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 ha. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're, going, we're going a little off subject here. And I'm sorry, I apologize, folks. But uh, let's get back to the, 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 the cases. Um, and there's a wonderful story that you have about an ET on a bicycle. And, you know, pre-side, we've come to the end of your time with us. And so get on your bicycle and bicycle over to unknowncountry.com and do two things. Get Preston's book, definitely. Uh, it, it, uh, get it on unknowncountry.com, Humanoids and High Strangers. So you could just go to Amazon and get it or get it wherever books are sold. But do get it because it's a really good read. And it, like all of this reading, it, it's enjoyable and it's fascinating, but it has a deeper purpose. And that is that it gets your mind used to this level of experience. So as you, we get deeper into it and closer to it, we're going to become better at handling it. And it's books like this that help us the most. Humanoids and High Strangeness by Preston Dennett. We'll see you next week. Okay, now let's get on this bicycle with the ET, Preston. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 18 of your book. Yeah, I just wanted to look up the year to make sure I got that right. It, um, yeah, it was 69 in the book. Yeah. No, I, I, I love this story. It's so unusual. She, Janet is her name. She doesn't want her last name used. Contacted me because we grew up Right, right next to each other. She's on Wells Drive in Woodland Hills. I lived in Topanga, which was the neighborhood behind Woodland Hills, and of course in Canoga Park, which is on the other side. And I know Wells Drive, which is where Janet lived. And as a young girl, uh, she often spent time outside because her household was a little bit abusive. And she would often just ride bikes with the neighborhood kids. And uh, Woodland Hills is, of course, a very crowded suburb outside of Los Angeles in Southern California. And one day she was riding bikes with her friends. This is a group of about five or six kids, all about uh, age, I think it was 14. Uh, 
and uh, well, let me see, it might be eight, but it's there about. And uh, they saw a UFO, and they didn't know what that was. It was a very brief sighting of a dark object hovering at the top of a driveway. And, you know, intrigued, they all went running up this driveway with their bikes. It was too steep to, to ride up. And that object was gone at this point. But looking down the driveway, they thought, hey, this would be fun to just glide down. And so they started going up and down this driveway just having fun until they got tired. And all the kids are like, well, let's go home and have some snacks and watch TV. And Janet, for whatever reason, decided, you know what, I'm going to go up the driveway one more time. And I'm going to race down and pass them all <laughs> and beat them home. And so she quickly runs up to the top of this 100-foot-long, very steep driveway and is intrigued because there's a little boy coming out of a grove of trees. There's nothing up there. It's just a little plateau. And uh, this boy is trying so hard to ride a bike and can't do it. <laughs> He's wobbling all over the place, weaving. And she's looking at him thinking, well, gosh, he looks strange. She could see, you know, he was about, about 300 feet away this point but getting closer quickly it took him about a few minutes to navigate towards her and as he got closer and closer she could see he had really long fingers he was barefoot and his feet were enormous he was very, very short he had a huge head large dark eyes what looked like hair but it wasn't hair it was kind of like a painted on with a widow's peak he was wearing a pendleton shirt levi's had a what looked like a brand new bike with a sissy bar, a nice bike. And as he got real close, she thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> this guy looks deformed. Now, she had had some experience with people who had physical problems because she had a friend who was oxygen deprived at birth and had a lot of physical problems as a result. So her first thought was, well, this is a child who has some physical problems until he came right up to her and she could see that he had just enormous dark eyes that wrapped around gray skin. And he got off his bike, reached out and held her, you know, put his hand on her shoulder. And she could see at this point, you know, there's four fingers, <laughs> they're very long. And he says, don't be afraid. Telepathically, she thinks, um, no harm will come to you. And her first thought was, why would you tell me not to be afraid? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> When someone tells you not to be afraid, clearly there's a reason to be afraid. Right. And she says time seemed to stand still. It was just her and this gray boy. Now, she called him the freak boy because she didn't know what grays were. Not for years and years and years would she realize that this was, in fact, a gray. But she liked him. There was something about him that she was very much enamored by. Um, like just a almost real strong friendship feeling. Um, she felt really comforted by him. At the same time, very, very much afraid, more afraid than she's ever been, wanted to run away, couldn't. And next thing she knows, he's gone, just gone. And she grabs her bike, races down the driveway. She's still thinking she's gonna beat everyone home, but runs into the house and everyone's like, where have you been? <laughs> it's been an hour. <laughs> She's like, did you see the freak boy? There's a monster, you know? And uh, they're like, stop trying to scare us. Uh, and yeah. years that and years until she realized that this was a gray. 
And when did she, she realize that a long time later? Yes, as an adult, when she started seeing this stuff on TV, right, and uh, ended up going under hypnotic regression, and didn't recall a whole lot other than being pulled on board, seeing other greys. They were giving her a message. She hasn't gotten that message yet, but she feels like there's something there that she's trying to recall. And this began a lifetime of experiences for her. How about cases where people have gone to other worlds? Yeah, I don't get a whole lot of those. It does happen. There's one guy in the book who apparently went to another world. He's from France and super intelligent and contacted me uh, because he felt it was his duty as so many other people are going through these experiences. And at a very young age, he was again, five years old, disappeared from his room. His mom could not find him. She was quite concerned the next morning and asked him about it. He described everything that happened. He found himself in this strange room being physically examined by beings he couldn't quite see. They were robed and they absolutely would not let him see their faces. I said, please don't look. Do not try to look. Stop trying to look. All they could see were their hands and the room itself, which was all molded into one piece. Uh, there was a female he sensed who was examining him and a male who was reading the readouts was much less gentle with him, quite stern. But they took him to a porthole or a window and showed him this other planet, which was completely green. And they said, this is actually your home planet. This is where you come from. And he was absolutely amazed uh, because even at that age, he's another one who has eidetic memory. <laughs> uh, he knew that this wasn't Earth could not be Earth. And in fact, the scene shifted and there was lots of movement of stars. And then he saw Earth, the craft dropping down to Earth as the terrain rose very quickly. So that's pretty much all he recalled, except waking up the next morning and his mom was like, where were you? I came into your room and you were not there. What happened? He described everything and she said, I need you to do two things. One, you must always remember this. Two, don't ever tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. So, so her mother, the mother was complicit in a way. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, she wouldn't the mother talk was, about herself. Yeah. I wonder if the mother would remember that. Um, unfortunately, she's passed on at this point. Yeah. So has my dad. And I have always wished I could have talked to him about this because he was definitely involved. He took me out to our country place and had and in the middle of the night and one January night and I met the visitors there and you, you'd think he would remember that, but he was so secretive. And then later I find out his brother was heavily involved in the Roswell incident. Of course it, it happened. Yeah. Well, one guy interviewed, he begged his mother, like, has this ever happened to you? She said, no, no, no. Until on her deathbed, she was like, bud, that was his nickname. I'm really sorry I kept this secret from you, but yes, I have had experiences. I was chased home by a UFO. I had missing time. I have some memory. It's like, mom, why didn't you tell me? She says, I just couldn't. I could not tell you. Uh, it scared her. 
But yeah, he was had a lot of experiences himself. You know, I think we live in a in a badly bruised world, and that that this entire planet essentially has PTSD, <laughs> and, and uh, we're not at peace with ourselves or the world around us at all. And I think that this gets to something deep behind all of this stuff that could we be the survivors of some war some incredible war that was so intense that it left us in a kind of state of phobia and amnesia a traumatic amnesia as a species yeah well we certainly do seem to have a lot of questions about human origins and the fact yeah. that there are ets that out there that We'll call them ETs because that's what I think we're dealing with here. Uh, that look just like us really raises serious questions about our relationship to them and our own origins. Because yeah, there was one case in the book. This little boy was visited by short little blue beings and started talking about how we came actually from Mars and were put here, which I found fascinating because that's what Dolly Saffron said. That's what a number of contactees have said. I'll tell you a story from a contactee about Mars. This is, uh, she was walking with her son in the woods in Tennessee. And suddenly this little blue man came out of a cave and said he was a rebel. And he was going to tell her the truth. And the truth is that there was a war between Earth and Mars many, many thousands of years ago. And we stripped Mars of all life, but they captured our souls. And now we are their captives. And we live on a, an eternal return. We never get to escape the, uh, the uh, return to the physical world. And when we die, we are brought back to physical life and we can't ever escape this wheel. And he said, our name for your planet is dead forever. Wow. That's now crazy. that's heavy duty <laughs> stuff. I, and, um, and, but if you look at the spiritual world, the world of spiritual instruction and knowledge, you find very quickly that one of the most difficult things to do, a greatest of human achievements, is to rise off the wheel of right of return. It's very hard, but apparently not impossible. The Egyptians believed that the soul was weighed against a feather. And if the soul was heavier than the feather, then it fell and was devoured down in the depths by Anubis. Wow, it's such heavy stuff. Yeah, well, I've certainly studied this because I kind of want to get off the wheel myself. <laughs> yeah. I think most of us do. I mean, because the, I mean, the wheel's breaking down. I, I mean, I don't want to come back here when it's there's no here here. You know, <laughs> right? Well, listen, let's uh, let's shift um, shift uh, gears a little bit because I want to talk about love. This is a good time to do it. Uh, a love like never before, chapter 13. Can you can you set the scene for us? 
Yes. It's a wonderful book, folks. It's so full of cases. Bearing in mind that you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, now I've heard it all. I don't need to get the book. You get this book, you page through it, and it is case after case after case, well worked out and very intelligently presented because Preston's been doing this for a while. And he knows how to do this kind of research. Tell us about a love like never before. Yes, this gentleman contacted me searching for answers. His name is Hector Sawiak. And just a super interesting guy. He's from Argentina, actually. And a pilot, a bank manager, a very intelligent man who has no history of contact whatsoever until, uh, as an adult, 2013, he heard about sightings in his area and decided he wanted to see a UFO. He's always kind of uh -oh. wondered about them. <laughs> Uh, never thought about it, but, you know, it's like, wow, these things can move around. I wonder if they're real. What's the technology behind all this? And went outside of the city with binoculars and a camera and a flashlight and tried to call him down unsuccessfully. The clouds came in and he was quite disappointed because he'd heard about sightings and thought, you know, I'm going to see one. That night at around 3 a.m., he woke up to someone calling his name, a male voice, saying Hector, 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 over again in his head. And he sat up in bed and for some reason ran to the window. At that exact point, he saw a very fiery orange-yellow object zoom across the sky, much slower than a shooting star, but far faster than anything that we have. And he was very much impressed, being a pilot, that this was not a conventional craft of any time kind, but certainly a craft. And the most amazing aspect was it pulled him out of bed. Somebody called his name. So he ruminated on this for a week or two until suddenly, two weeks later or so, he wakes up because his room is filling with light. And he is terrified, absolutely horrified, to see two beings standing in the doorway of his room. Uh, one's about five and a half feet tall, the other's six feet tall. They're wearing what are called blue skin-tight uniforms with red belts, red cuffs, red collars, and kind of grayish-green skin, large eyes, but look largely human otherwise. And he's completely scared, right? Until one of them says telepathically, have no fear. We are not here to harm you. And so at that point, his emotions at a 180-degree turnaround and he felt this love coming from him, that love coming from them that he's never felt before. So it wasn't, it went beyond how he felt for his children, for his wife. This was a love like he's never felt ever before. All encompassing, unconditional, absolute pure love. And the shorter of these beings walked up to his bed, he's crying at this point, cradled his head in its arms, and said, we have come to heal you. And pulled out this little triangular pill, brown, very small, and said, you need to eat this. So he took it in his hand and put it in his mouth and swallowed it and said it was quite bitter. Uh, but he took it dutifully, felt like these beings had his best interests in mind. It was quite strange because he was healthy. He's a young man, loves sports, works out and eats right, so he wasn't sick. 
and he wakes up the next morning and he knows it's real because his tears are still dried up, his pillow is wet, and he's very nauseous and would remain nauseous for about a week. Told his family, who was very supportive, although puzzled and confused, uh, but it completely transformed his life. He got a complete new viewpoint on things and realized, yes, ETs are real. That's what he wanted to know. Is this real? And he actually decided to go back to school and get a very um, advanced degrees in education and he's studying consciousness. He's so intelligent. You know, he was using words I've never heard of. I'm like, wait, I need to look this up. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, this guy is smart. Uh, and just a, this wonderful, wonderful man. And I asked him, is it all right, you know, if we can do an interview? And he, he agreed. And I said, could I use your name? He says, please do. I want people to know that this is real. And I would be honored to share my story. So, yeah, I love this story because it's different. He reached out to the ETs and they responded. He has no history of contact. And it was just a very benevolent encounter. Well, I, I think it's important for us to hear that this, is, this does happen. I think many close encounter witnesses have had quite a mix of encounters. And, uh, you know, I've had encounters that were very tough. I mean, the, the first encounter was very tough. But I've never had what I would describe as a malicious encounter at all. You know, they were they were getting something from me that night in December of 85, and they were going to get it for sure. Uh, but And I couldn't do anything about that. But there was no malice in it. They were simply doing a job. And um, for the most part, it's not a malicious experience. And there is cer sometimes certainly a, a, a certain level of love. And uh, that's important to remember because a lot of people see the experience of the beings as being very robotic and heartless, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, we're coming toward the end of our time together. Uh, let's just talk about the, uh, what I'm looking for the story here. Just a second. Uh, uh, uh yeah, the company in the company of extraterrestrials. Uh, this is chapter seven in the book, and I know we didn't talk about this beforehand. Is one that we would talk about. So if you're not prepared for it, I can ask you to talk about another one. But anyway, I think that it's an interesting place to to end if you want to talk about this story. Yeah, sure. Um, I love this case. This is a very young man. He's now in his early 20s. Abdil is his name. And he, like all the witnesses, I sent him his chapter because uh, I want everything to be accurate, of course. And we went through it line by line because he was very, very concerned. He wanted to make sure that it was being accurately portrayed. Mm -hmm. uh, he's from Puerto Rico and was about 14 years old when he saw, I think it's Hangar One on TV. About yeah, I remember that movie. Uh, UFOs, right. and so uh, he became intrigued by the idea and started to do research and realized Puerto Rico has got quite a history of encounters. It does, and, indeed. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It's quite astonishing when you look into it. Uh, and 
started reaching out to them. And much like Hector Sawiak, you know, has no early memories of contact. He's still, you know, quite young, but wanted to see a UFO so badly and started meditating and getting into telepathy and magnetics and levitation and all these esoteric subjects, or what you might call esoteric, uh, and ended up having a close-up sighting of this object, which thrilled him. And so he's mentally reaching out very, with a lot of emotion. And this is when strange things started to really happen. Uh, he would hear knocks on his house, on the kitchen window at one point, on his bedroom window. There was no one there. There was some stuff he did not want to share. Uh, so we didn't get into it, but I think he may have had some contact in his bedroom. Uh, but then he had an experience where the night light, the motion sensor kept going off in the backyard. And the next day they went out there and there was an imprint on his lawn. He sent me the pictures, I have them. And it was very interesting because this was not there before. And it seemed no rational cause for this. And he's examining it with his sister when she finds a little piece of metal. And it's this metallic pendant that says Bond and Company, B-O-N-D. And thought, gosh, is this a message? Yeah. Because well, he was, you know, wanting to, you know, bond with them in a way. And that's how he took it. Yeah. And of course, this is apparently a, just a normal piece of iron. But he, what's it doing there? It's very odd. There is so much the way communication works in this thing. It's so familiar. I can tell you probably 10 other stories of similar sort of synchronistic things that happen that that amount to a communication. Yeah, and he ended up having a full-on humanoid sighting shortly later where he was, because he kept going out into the yard trying to figure out things out. There was another imprint that looked like a ET face with large eyes and an unusual shaped head. And look, he went out one evening on impulse and saw a figure run by much faster than a human being. And this is not any humanoid I've heard about before or since. He said it ran in a way that almost looked like a cartoon. There's a Japanese manga cartoon called Naruto or Naruta, which you know I looked up because this is how he used it to describe. And this is a cartoon figure which runs in a kind of waggling way with its arms uh, stretched out behind. He says, this is what this figure did. It had sort of a triangular shaped head, large eyes, uh, quite short, wearing some type of uniform perhaps or not, he couldn't quite tell. But it ran right across to the neighbor's yard and he wanted to go and check it out, but for some reason he didn't. He just turned around and went back in, which was out of character for him. And certainly that's another detail I hear quite a bit. People don't react the way they think they would right but he got his sighting that he wanted to, he wanted to bond with these ets he wanted to meet them and he reached out and he got his wish and he's still having encounters and are they still encounters he wants to have yes yeah 
he's becoming much more interested in spirituality and this sort of thing, which is absolutely a pattern I see. Oh yeah, me too. I mean, I wasn't, I was, I, I, I've always been interested in it to a degree, but it intensified greatly. And for me and for so many others after the experience. And in that note, I think we uh, can, can leave dreamland behind us to, for this week. And, uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience to have you on the show as always. And I wanted to end with something that reminds us that it is possible to do this, that this was a witness who, who got out there and built a relationship that works for him. And we can do this. It won't be easy and it won't happen overnight, but we're getting along. There are more and more witnesses, folks, who are doing this. And there's lots of people who are seeing, who can go outside with a camera and the UFOs will show up. And it goes deeper, as you saw in this last case. It can go deeper. It can become a relationship. And maybe that's a good thing. But <laughs> even if it's a bad thing, I think it's going to ultimately happen anyway. Preston Dennett. Thank you so much for being with us as always on Dreamland. It was a great pleasure. And do give Dolly Saffron our very best from everyone, from me and from everyone on the show. And we hope to see her back again soon. Sure will. Thank you, Willie. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.